Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just coming up to 4 o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. Today, working towards a war without war, a world without war, with Brian Terrell from Voices for Creative Nonviolence. Part one of a three-part series in Haiti with Sasha Galiz-Lakakis. Commentary by writer Joan Coxidge and a recording of a lecture by Dr Salman Abusita at the State Library last week in the Theatrette. Palestine, right of return or a real possibility? Let's hear first from Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane Lister, when in a week that was exclusive investigation, great investigative journalism, we can reveal that the US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, told the truth this week. No, no, seriously, that is the truth. He told the truth. After a comprehensive study of train killer war records, we can reveal exclusively the Kurds did not assist the US of at Normandy. The evidence is irrefutable. We checked and double-checked. Didn't lift a bloody finger to use the vernacular to help the greatest capitalist power in the world. Well-spotted Donald. Greatest investigative journalism ever, ever. Thanks to me, me, the world's greatest mind, ever, ever. Okay, Donald, thanks. But it's even worse than the derogation of duty Donald so promptly exposed. Our in-depth study also revealed, and Donald is free to use our research, also revealed Kurds took no part in the US of civil war or the US of war of independence, let alone the other 168 or whatever countries the US of has been forced to invade, or sorry, forced to liberate. In other words, long-term refusal to defend liberty, freedom and democracy. But now Donald has explained his apparent desertion of the Kurdish people in northern Syria who had done the US of strain killing to seize Syria from the Syrians. Well, the parts of Syria the US of's great close, close friend and regional defender of liberty, freedom and democracy, Zion, has not seized and declared part of greater Zion. Apparent desertion was a brilliant tactical manoeuvre to get the Kurds out of the area they had defended and allow his close friend and strong, strong leader Erdo gain more land to gain more land. Thanks to his two IC Mike Dollars and Pence moving in with a bucket and big mop to clean up the mess. And the brilliant manoeuvre is working a treat as the Syrians and the Russians and quite possibly the IS Caliphate, the Kurds throughout, move in. Oh, and more good news. Donald has announced he will host next year's G7 Profit Profit Talk Fest at one of his Florida golf resorts, which needs a bit of financial fillip. Yet some dissidents immediately suggested the generous offer is likely unconstitutional, forcing Donald to maybe rethink it. But for goodness sake, if he's going to host the thing, why miss an opportunity, a business opportunity, to make a few dollars out of it as well? Win-win. 
but in the lose-lose department, our esteemed airlines have called on the government to, quote, call time on monopoly airports, complaining they are ripping off, well, price gouging, they say, including not just the public paying exorbitant prices for just about everything, but themselves as the airports charge them whatever they feel like charging them. Something we'd never have thought possible when the government privatised the airports to give us the benefits of a super-efficient privately owned monopoly. And any wonder the airlines are upset, because ripping off price gouging would be such an anathema to them. Like a few weeks ago during the footy finals, when prices to state venues tripled and quadrupled overnight. Well, there's ripping off and ripping off, price gouging and price gouging, they explained. On that super-efficiency of the private sector vis-à-vis the inefficient bloated hand of the public sector, another esteemed practitioner, the worst pack bank, has complained that government inquiries into why the banks didn't pass on the rate cut we agree, who needs an inquiry to work that one out? Anyway, Worstpac says it could cost them their AA rating. Very interesting. What's very interesting, that the super-efficient have a AA rating, yet the inefficient, bloated public hand has a AAA rating. Surely it couldn't mean the, the inefficient, bloated is more efficient, could it? The Socialist Party has announced it has difficulty with many aspects of free trade agreements with Indonesia, Hong Kong and Peru, particularly the retention of clauses allowing True Blue Aussie to be sued by great corporations if True Blue Aussie passes laws that they deem cost them profits, like increasing the minimum wage or protecting the environment from their profit-making activities. Uh, So you'll oppose the legislation, we assumed. Uh, the Socialist Party will support this legislation. Supremo and would-be big Supremo Anthony Albin Uzi highlighted his Socialist credentials, which currently sit somewhere south of zero. Uh, this will confuse the caring business class into thinking we're on its side. This will confuse the government into thinking we've abandoned altogether any principles we still had. It's a brilliant tactic. And the evil unions? We support the trade union movement to the hilt. Uh, But they oppose this. They say it will lead to workers being exploited, wages suppressed. Almost to the hilt. And they will benefit when a socialist government under my dynamic leadership is elected. And Anthony, the government has now announced it will legislate to lock in wages and conditions on major projects for the life of the project, preventing workers taking industrial action, preventing agreements expiring. It will give great corporations certainty and eliminate costly industrial disputes, the government says. The evil unions say they will oppose the legislation, so presumably you will too. The Socialist Party will move important amendments to this legislation to make it better. Uh, Better for whom? Better for the Socialist Party to get away with voting for it. But if the government rebuts your amendments, then we will vote for it. Obviously, we will have no choice but to vote for it. Well, one just possibly top-of-the-head thought choice would be not to vote for it and lose all credibility with the true blue Aussie people. We must be a responsible Her Most Gracious Majesty's opposition. Well, they're certainly being responsible for every bit of caring business class party legislation.
The caring business class relations minister Christian Porter of Profits told the week that was it was essential to prevent agreements expiring mid-project allowing and when he puts it this way we can comprehend the major threat to civilization as we know it workers accessing protected industrial action to apply maximum pressure to employers for wages and conditions. Good God, Christian, workers wanting wages and conditions. Sadly, yes, we, we all know workers on these projects already earn ridiculously inflated exorbitant pay packets crippling their poor caring employers. Uh, but the CEOs and senior management of these poor caring employers receive many, many times more and earn every cent of it. It's no easy job keeping the greed and avarice of evil unions and evil workers under control. Are you worried the Socialist Party will oppose the bill? It'll be a first if they do. It, it would be irresponsible to oppose this essential legislation and Mr Albinuzi is proving to be very, very responsible. Oh, well, that's good news. Speaking of great corporations, the collective of great mainstream media corporations is to be congratulated on its Your Right to Know campaign, arguing governments restrict them, telling us what we need to know. What selfless social commitment, but it's the least we'd expect from Lord Rupert of Wapping and the other media barons of business. And we know how much we can rely on what the mainstream media wants us to know. Like the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin report this week of the death of famous Cuban ballerina Alicia Alonso, pointing out she was one of the earliest members of the American Dance Company in New York in the 40s and 50s. She was recognized the world over for the stylized beauty of her choreography and was named Prima Ballerina Absoluta, the rarely bestowed honor in dance. But then in the final sentence, how all that paled against her most heinous fault, her heinous evil. But Alonso also drew criticism, it said, for her long-time support of Castro's government. Oh no, what a blot on her otherwise brilliant career. Doesn't tell us who she drew criticism from. We obviously don't need to know that, but we can assume it was Lord Rupert. And on that point, while they tell us how critical they are to democracy, the fifth estate in defence of our freedoms, and of their own freedoms, like making a fortune, they don't need to run a campaign that equally contributes to their important role, your right not to know. For while we need to know that supporting the Cuban government is to draw criticism, there are many, many things we don't need to know. And they must, in the interest of all of us, determine what we do and what we don't need to know. And the most important thing we don't need to know is the truth. It's bad for us. One truth we do need to know at the moment is what the great and powerful and beautiful will be eating and drinking and wearing, enjoying the great corporation's hospitality at Flemington next week. We haven't yet seen daily piggies with descriptions of the great fashion houses' designs for what the Extinction Rebellion people will be wearing during the blockade of the world's fossils meeting next week. Clearly, that falls under the you're right not to know category. But we can guarantee the sort of coverage that we'll get. Our right to know just how disruptive these bludgers are. They're bludging bound to be condemned by the great and powerful and beautiful in the hospitality marquees. Finally, bad news listener. We have no intention of blacking out large chunks of the week that was and reducing it to half a dozen words. Bad luck. Good afternoon.
And good afternoon to Mr. Kevin Ely. Last time I spoke with Brian Terrell, a co-coordinator for Voices for Creative Nonviolence, he was just back from the Middle East and then a Palestinian support weekend in Chicago. This time it was Limerick Island, the weekend of the 5th and the 6th of October, to participate in the fourth annual conference for World Beyond War, titled Pathways to Peace. I asked Brian first to identify the group World Beyond War. It's a fairly recent organization, just in the last few years. Real founders are uh, David Swanson from North Carolina and David Hartso from California. It's growing fast. We had people at the conference from as far away New Zealand and closest to you and uh, Japan, uh, Korea, Iran, many of the European countries, the U.S., Canada. It's a very radical organization in the sense of uh, going to the roots because David Swanson has put it, it's not about trying to protest against the next war or the next weapon system or the uh, policies going on right now, but just it's about abolishing war. As far as what benefits uh, peace and freedom and democracy, war is, is never, has never been an effective tool for that. And points out the various treaties and laws. You know, I think the, you know, the best of human development uh, after World War I, the, the Kellogg-Briand Pact, which is supposed to be operant international law that, that all nations are supposed to be uh, obedient to that says that war of any kind and under any conditions is, is a crime. It's illegal. You know, the world after World War I just agreed, we're not going to do this anymore. And of course, that resolve didn't last very long, but as the different countries went to war, they were uh, violating the pact that they, had, that they had made together. So it's trying to remind the world of that and trying to show the, the folly of war and also try to come up with and promote practical alternatives to, to war, uh, nonviolent direct action, um, civilian defense, nonviolent civilian defense, negotiating diplomacy are all preferable to, to war. We're really at a time when, you know, I, in my address at this, at this conference we just had in Limerick, I quoted uh, Greta Thunberg, the, the climate activist who, a very young woman, who said that uh, she denied being either a pessimist or an optimist. She says, I'm a realist. And I think we are in that really at a time in history we could rail against war and protest against war and call for peace, but you know, we've always called uh, unrealistic and utopian numbers. And what we are thinking about is impossible. It's, you know, it can't happen. But we've come to a point in human history where the, uh, you know, just the, uh, the continuance of the human species, along with thousands and thousands of other species presently on this planet, is, is really in question. And I really believe that we are calling for an end to war calling for peace. We who believe that people can live together peacefully without exploitation, uh, without taking more of the world's resources than is our, is our due, uh, live without racism, yeah, with equality, we can live sustainably, that we are the hard-headed realists. We are the pragmatists, the ones who are taking the unflinching look at the condition of the world as this day, as it really is, not as we wish it to be or dream it to be. And it is exactly the people who think that life go on pretty much the way it's going, 
or that even we in the Western countries can become even richer and more powerful that uh, in, in our, you know, on this side of the world that America can be great again, whatever that means. That that is that's irresponsible dreaming. That's conceit. It's a dream that we have to wake up from, or we're or we're all going to die of it because. The handwriting is on the wall, and it's so clear now that we can't continue the way we're continue the way we're going. There, there has to be uh, very radical alternatives. Brian, this was the fourth conference, annual conference. Why was Limerick chosen as a venue? I wasn't in on that decision, but I think it's because there is a uh, in Limerick itself, and in the area around, uh, you know, in Ireland, there's several. You know, that, that, that the world beyond war has been growing and that in Limerick there is a uh, very active contingent. Also, it is the uh, site of uh, Shannon Airport, a huge international airport in in Ireland. It's uh, right nearby. Uh, we were there also to give support the uh, local and international efforts to get the U.S. military out of, out of Ireland and out of Shannon. The, the airport at Shannon has been used, uh, I think, almost daily, since 2001, since the beginning of the so-called War on Terror, U.S. planes, both U.S. soldiers, have been uh, refueling and passing through Shannon, and also shipments of weapons. And there's evidence even that prisoners unjustly, un, you know, extrajudicially uh, kidnapped, really, from their home countries have passed through between CIA black sites, and, um, and you know, many have been tortured. And all this is in country that is by its constitution and laws and by the vast preponderance of popular opinion is supposed to be a neutral country and you know, the, the Irish people are, are very dedicated to that and it's been done, done kind of uh, surreptitiously the Irish government is by law they're supposed to be certifying that these American planes that are passing through are not carrying combatants they're not carrying weapons. That Ireland is no way aiding and abetting uh, any country at war, uh, but the, uh, they have not done so and uh, have looked the other way, if not encouraged the, the United States from using the uh, Shannon Airport as a de facto airbase in its wars. So there have been various demonstrations uh, over the years. Um, trying to especially wake up the Irish people so they can see what's what's happening there. One of the things that I was happy to be there for is I was able to spend some time with uh, two friends, uh, Tarek Akoff and uh, Ken Myers, who are American citizens. They are both veterans of the U.S. military. They are um, in their 60s and 70s and members of uh, Veterans for Peace, which is an organization that's also getting a good foothold in Ireland. And uh, several months ago, I'm, I'm afraid I don't remember when, but to them it was a, seems a long time, they uh, were arrested by the Irish Garda, but they, they had uh, got onto the airport, onto the uh, runway, and approached these American military planes, and they requested to be shown what was aboard these planes. Yeah, that the Irish government was supposed to do this, but they were not. So in that in that absence, they wanted to, you know they they were saying that they they wanted to see what was on the on these airplanes and report it to the Irish people and report it to the Irish authorities. Instead of thanking them for 
reminding them of their responsibility and help doing some of their job for them. They were instead arrested and uh, held for uh, uh, 12 days in the jail in Limerick, and they were then um, given bond, but the court decided that these two men were a flight risk, even though they definitely wanted to have a trial and the didn't really expect to be able to make the inspection that they wanted, but they expected they would be able to get, get in front of a court and be able to, to uh, uh, expose what's happening at Shannon through the, through the process of the trial. So they, 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 they are committed to coming back to, to Ireland for a trial, but uh, because they were considered a flight risk, the court confiscated their passports and ordered them not to leave Ireland while this process is going on. What were they charged? Uh, trespassing and interfering with official acts and just things like that. Kind of the usual things when people get on a military base. Nothing all that serious. And they, they cut a hole in the fence to get to get in, and I think there's the property damage of a, of a, a few links of a chain-link fence. Is this an international airport, and does this part of the where the American planes are, is that separate from the where other people get on and off planes? I don't believe it is, no. You know, I flew in and out of Dublin, but people who go through Shannon say that they're, almost whenever they're there, they're U.S. soldiers in their uniforms who are, you know, waiting in the lounges and eating in the restaurants. And uh, so it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty common. So uh, these two men have a hearing later this month, and they're hoping to get their passport back, but the wheels of justice grind slow in Ireland, and they are not going to get, uh, it's not going to go to trial for maybe a year or maybe two more years. In a very real sense, they're exiles. <laughs> they, have to, they, you know, they, they, they need to stay in Ireland. They're using their time really well, and they've been, um, as far as if the, the point of, what we're, of these kinds of actions is to inform the public, it's been spectacularly uh, successful. And the courts have actually helped in that with this with this gambit of, of keeping their passports, because they've you know it gives them a place to stand and speak on people listen. So they've been in the popular television shows, they've been in the newspapers, because I was you know uh, spending some time with Tarek in, in in Dublin. It was like you know strangers coming and talking to us, you know, recognizing him and, and from the newspapers, and they're getting uh, you know they, they you know they say that over the uh, once they've been in Ireland and talking to thousands and thousands of people, they haven't, uh, they've hardly heard a discouraging word from any of the Irish citizens who, who are almost always show gratitude for what they're doing for peace and for Ireland. And of course, this is not the first activist or activists who've done this. We have Kieran O'Reilly who did this many years ago at Shannon. Right, and they actually uh, grounded a plane by, by using hammers. Mm. Uh, that was... Uh, uh, again, and then they were found not guilty. We'll see what happens with this. Yeah, there is this has been going on for, you know, going on for many years. And if Chandler is being used as a military base, the uh, protest should be unrelenting. But it's really too bad that you know decades later, decades after uh, Kieran and the others were found not guilty for you know a much more aggressive action than what what our friends presently are waiting trial for that the Irish government still has not done anything about it. The myth that, you know, the governments and the courts and the police of the world tell themselves when they get into these things, you know, they, they say they're enforcing the law and they say that they're judging according to the law. 
And my experience here in the United States and, and limited experience in other places and experience of my friends is that pretty consistently when we have these kind of nonviolence protests and direct action, it is the curious thing is that it is the, that it is the defendants, those who are charged with the crimes, even though many of them, as uh, you know, Kieran would, identify themselves as anarchists. Is it's, the, it's those defendants, even the anarchists among us, who are the ones who have the most respect for the law, who are insisting the law be upheld, who actually have more knowledge of the law. Now, most courts and police are just uh, uh, functionaries trying to keep uh, the status quo, trying to keep order. And they seem to be um, kind of miffed and confused when someone brings up the law, because the law really isn't what they're about. What they're really about is allowing life to go on pretty much as it has and allowing the military-industrial complex, allowing big capital to go on on unmolested by pacifists or trade unionists or <laughs> free speech advocates. If uh, the courts of the world were really interested in law, the world would be a very different place. And if the governments and if the law, so-called law enforcement agencies, if the police and the CIA and MI5 and every, if they were all really interested in, in the law, Julian Assange would not be in prison now and uh, instead of uh, Chelsea Manning, uh, who's in jail again now for a grand jury, resisting a grand jury, but as a um, private first class giving out information that had been wrongly kept from the American people and the people of the world. The real question for a court of law, and Private Manley's case, a court martial, should have been, who else knew about it and kept their mouth shut? <laughs> Private Manning obeyed the law. Private Manning you know, did what a soldier is supposed to do, did what a citizen is supposed to do, and ends up in the stockade for years. And the real question, like, who really were interested in, in law enforcement, would be who knew what other people in the military or the CIA knew about these things and kept their mouths shut. The question again with Julian Assange is who else knew this and sat on it? <laughs> because much of the information that, that we have through the efforts of these good people and of Edward Snowden is information that is vital for our democracy. People need to be informed. Whatever form of government we have is, you know, the, for it to be just and for it to come to uh, the right conclusions, we, we need to have information, and it's been kept from us. Uh, so, yeah, Ken and Tara are not the criminals. The criminals, uh, the people are violating Irish law, Irish neutrality, and in violating international law are uh, not these two U.S. veterans, but they're the people who are running Shannon Airport who are supposed to be overseeing and making sure these things don't happen, who are the ones who are afoul from, of the law. And, of course, the U.S. military is complicit in the uh, active part of this law-breaking. Ryan, two days of workshops, you, of course, wouldn't be able to attend them all. Can you talk a little bit about some of them that you participated in? Well, yeah, we had, um, you know, part of it was an overview of what the different uh, local groups around the world were doing, gave a short introductions. Yes, I was, I was very honored that I shared a platform with Marie McGuire, who is the 1976 Nobel Peace Laureate, co-founder of uh, the Peace People in Northern Ireland, very active uh, 
campaigner for peace. We had talks about the, what was happening with our American friends and the Irish folk, folks who were, have been involved in the resistance at Shannon. And then about other bases around the world where there's been resistance and protest. That's part of what the, the, one of the uh, World Beyond War, one of its activities lately has been the closing of foreign bases. The United States having some 800 bases around the world um, outside the United States. So by far the, the largest. There's no country that comes close to having as many soldiers outside of its borders as, as the United States. So we heard about some of that and talk about divestment. Also gratified to see my friend Hakim, Dr. Hakim from Kabul, Afghanistan, who um, I've seen several times in Kabul, and it was very sweet to spend some time with, with Hakim outside of a war zone. <laughs> and there were workshops where people uh, made music. You know, they were talking, you know, there were some film screenings, and uh, we also then, which I, I really appreciated, was after... Uh, from Friday afternoon, I arrived just in time for the first meeting on Friday afternoon to Sunday afternoon. Didn't get outside at all. It was a very comfortable conference center. It was, uh, and in the company of some very good people, some very good friends, people I just met, that we then all got in, uh, got on a bus and were taken to, um, Shannon and we had a, had a protest there. So we came with our signs and banners and Marched up to the to the gates, which was very curious. Again, this is not a military base; it's a big, big airport. And we got to a point on the road going into the Shannon the, where the uh, buses and taxis and cars are going by, taking people in and out of the airport. And anybody else would be allowed in, but because we were clearly there protesting the use of the U.S. military of Shannon Airport, we were not allowed to come any closer. Uh, we had a interchange with the Garda, with the police, and, but nobody pushed it to the point of point of arrest. I was really glad after being in a meeting and thinking and talking and listening and sitting in chairs <laughs> to be able to be out and to uh, actually, you know, present at that site. And I think it's a you know important thing for people around the world to find out where their closest uh, military base is. And, and uh, made our feelings known there. It just emphasises, doesn't it, Brian, when you're treated like this, that peace activists are very dangerous people, aren't they? There's a sense in which that's true. <laughs> you're not that we're going to hurt anybody, and I think they know that, but I think psychologically there's a lot of fear, and it shows, you know, I, I, I don't know if these people would, the police and these various places around the world and the, the powers that be that are being so uh, aggressive in, in punishing people like us. There's a sense of it's, it's, it's disturbing and frightening, but it's also very affirming to me because if we were just deluded, naive people, if that's all we were, and if that's all the uh, powers that be saw us as, we would be just pretty pathetic and harmless people that could be just totally ignored. But there's something affirming. In a strange way, the, the, the government are affirming that if we were left to our own devices, we could actually change things, <laughs> that, that we do have a power. And even if we don't recognize it, even if sometimes we feel helpless, the people who are trying to keep the industrial 
military industrial complex going don't see us that way. They they, they understand the, the power that we have, even when we miss it. Before I left, I was able, I got to Dublin and uh, was able to march with the um, Extinction Rebellion. That was something that was very much in, in the discussion in the conference in Limerick, too. You know, this is a movement that you know many of us have been waiting for. I've been involved in this for more than 40 years, and my experience with the environmental movement, and even as I've participated in it to some extent, is that there has been a real resistance to recognizing the place of war in climate change. In environmental, before that, we were aware of that, and any the idea that war and militarism would be a danger to the environment. It seems absurd that there, there would be, but I think, especially in the 70s when I was starting in the United States, there was a real fear that in the environmental movement, if they were perceived as being soft on communism or soft on defense, that that could hurt the movement. And so we skirted around all of this, but, the, but we, we can't anymore, and it's great to see the young people are recognizing these connections. Even what's you know going on, and not only is, is the U.S. military one of the, it's alone, all the militaries in the world on top of it, one of the biggest producers of greenhouse gases and one of the biggest polluters. You know, the amount of fuel that it takes to bring a F-16 fighter plane across the ocean is you know, staggering. But the wars that are being fought now and the wars that we fear are very often over um, the dwindling dwindling reserves of, of fossil fuel. That's what's happening in Yemen. And the children who are starving because of the blockades and people who are dying in the in the bombing raids, they're victims of climate change. They're victims of, of, of this already. The, the extermination is happening. And I think uh, this is this is being realized and it's being articulated by these young people, older people too, who join them, who are protesting. And I'm also encouraged that with the Extinction Rebellion, rebellion part of it is that, that there's a recognition that we're not going to be able to just vote our way out of the world's problems, that, that politics as usual, politics as it has been going on these last years, are not going to do it, especially not in the time frame that we have. That to make change, we're going to have to do some disrupting. We're going to have to nonviolently and in a good spirit. And uh, my experience of the Extinction Rebellion is, even in a friendly and good-humored way, but we have to stop the progress toward the extinction that's the, you know that's going on and getting the right party elected. Even if that, even if the long view that's going to be something helpful is, it's simply not going to be enough, and it's not not enough now in the most immediate sense. You know, our lives and our the things that we think we believe in the, the and our personal hopes and plans they need to be disrupted, and they are doing it. And I'm very encouraged by that. And the encouragement of your weekend in Limerick. What did you bring home with you? When it comes down to it, so much of it is relationships. The weekend um, deepened some that I've already had and, and found some new ones. Someone has said, I don't remember who, that, that courage is contagious. 
and that we catch it from each other, and that we need to get together and support each other. This is a, this is a very difficult, difficult work, and we nobody can do it alone, and nobody is important by themselves. It has to be something that, that, that a community of people who are not in total disagreement with everybody else. This is not a matter of an ideology, not a political party. We can have our debates, but that we have each other, and that that's really essential. I did learn a lot of facts, <laughs> and I learned a lot about how Ireland is viewing the, um, you know, the looming Brexit, uh, their perspectives on it. Very happy to see some of the countryside and to walk along the Atlantic and to, then to walk along the uh, Irish Sea. As a very short visit, and I'd never been to Ireland before. Very rich time. As I'm thinking and writing, it's still ruminating over, over the experience. Sounds as though you'll be going back again. I hope so. <laughs> and that was Brian Terrell, who's a co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence, centred in Chicago, the U.S. And this is coming up next week, and we'll be hearing some of this on Tuesday Home Time next week as well. From October the 28th to the 31st, some of the worst climate criminals will be gathering for the International Mining Conference, IMARC, at the Melbourne Convention Centre. Blockade IMARC is an activist alliance committed to putting a stop to the mass destruction caused by extractive industries across the globe and the harm they cause to communities and ecosystems. We need your help to be part of this blockade. Find out how at blockadeimark.com or check out our Facebook page, Blockade IMARC a 3CR supporter. Next on Tuesday, home time, to Sasha Gillies-Lakakis and a segment from last Sunday's Latin American Update program at 10.30. New three-part series, and it is named Once the Freest, Now the Poorest. This series will be focusing on the island nation of Haiti, which is incredibly pertinent given the current social, economic and political crisis racking the country. In fact, there have just been fresh calls for the nation's leader to resign, and massive protests are continuing in force. Now, Haiti is a deeply significant country in the context of Latin America. It was, in fact, the first free black republic and the first free Latin American nation in the world. And for that, the West has punished Haiti and driven it to absolute misery. But we will learn more about that in the coming weeks. Our first instalment today will look at Haiti prior to the arrival of the Europeans and up to the Haitian Revolution. Then we will analyse the revolution itself and the newly declared Republic of Haiti in week two and finish with the 20th and 21st centuries in week three. Haiti, a small and mountainous nation, shares the island of Hispaniola just to the west of Cuba with the Dominican Republic. Of course, these artificial boundaries did not exist prior to the arrival of the Europeans. Rather, the entire island was populated by the Taino people who had migrated from the Amazon and Orinoco regions of South America and arrived in roughly 600 AD. They came to call the island Aiti, meaning Land of High Mountains, or Kiskeya, depending on regional variations in language. The Taino were organised into casicazgos, or chiefdoms, of which there were five around the island. Each was ruled by a cacique who received tribute from his people and others defeated in conflict, though by and large they were a peaceful culture. 
Most major studies have indicated that Taino society was prosperous yet deeply paternalistic and hierarchical, with polygamy being actively practiced by the men of the culture. Their enmity with the neighbouring Carib people was notorious, and it has even been speculated that Carib raids on Taino populations in South America prompted their retreat to the Caribbean in the first place, though this is still a hotly contested theory among historians. In 1492, the arrival of Christopher Columbus was remarkably underwhelming, at least on the Haitian side of the island. A small community of 39 Spaniards established the settlement of La Navidad on what is today Cap Hatien. When Columbus returned to the island the next year, in 1493, he found that all 39 settlers had perished and La Navidad had been abandoned. Greater efforts were diverted to the west of the island and a colonial capital was established at Santo Domingo. Yaguana in Haiti South was the next more successful attempt by the Spaniards to establish a foothold in Haiti in 1502. It is interesting to note that the Spanish held all of Hispaniola, including Haiti, until the early 17th century, and also presided over the extinction of the island's indigenous inhabitants in one of the worst of the Latin American colonial genocides. In the first few years of conquest, 90% of Hispaniola's indigenous population perished through a combination of the encomienda slave system and the usual culprit, disease. Interest in Hispaniola over the next few decades diminished significantly with the discovery of gold, silver and other minerals in Latin America. And while Santo Domingo in the West was always well defended due to its strategic position, the Haitian side was neglected by the Spanish. Yaguana, chief settlement of the Spanish on the Haitian side of the island, was destroyed no less than three times by English, French and Dutch pirates. Piracy was endemic in the waters of Hispaniola at the time, and these brigands exercised a great degree of authority in local affairs given the absence of strong Spanish rule. For several decades, the island of Tortuga, now within Haiti's territory, was ruled by a pirate council that operated independently until the French consolidated their rule. The Dutch, in particular, however, were loathed by the Spaniards, who were dealing with their rebellion back in Europe. Even more humiliating, Spanish colonists on the Haitian coast were actively and illegally trading with Dutch vessels. In other words, trading with the enemy. This led to a disastrous move on the part of the Spanish. In 1605, the Crown forcibly relocated Spaniards living on the Haitian side closer to Santo Domingo in a bid to stop these illegal exchanges. These events, known as Las Devastaciones, or the Devastations, led to mass starvation as infrastructure in the West could not accommodate the massive influx of individuals. Others fought against Crown soldiers and yet more fled on passing vessels or into the dense, forested interior. Eventually, in 1697, Spain formally seceded control of Haiti, now depopulated and defenceless, to the French, who had been keen to conquer this territory for decades, though in reality they had exercised significant control over the local economy since 1625. With this move, Hispaniola was divided and the French colony of Saint-Domingue was born. And where the Spanish had failed to exploit Haiti's economic potential, the French turned the island into a stunning success for the colonial elite. The French quickly set about establishing a number of settlements in Haiti, including the current capital, Port-au-Prince, in 1749. However, the beginning of French colonial rule on this island was by no means smooth. Two devastating earthquakes and subsequent tsunamis, one in 1751 and another in 1770, left hundreds dead immediately and up to 30,000 more perished from starvation and disease in and around Port-au-Prince alone. 
However, by the 1760s, not even these setbacks could halt the rapid economic growth the island was experiencing. Almost the entirety of Saint-Domingue's success came down to one cash crop, sugar. It allowed Saint-Domingue to become arguably the wealthiest colony in the world at the time. The island produced 40% of all sugar consumed in Europe and the vast majority of sugar in the world for that matter. French citizens of all social classes flocked to the colony, eager to strike big and get rich quickly. Of course, it wasn't the vast majority of Frenchmen who were engaging in the brutal, back-breaking labour of sugar harvesting. By the 1780s, Haiti accounted for one-third of the total transatlantic slave trade. Slavers scoured the coast of Africa, including Congo, Guinea and Dahomey, kidnapping thousands and sending them to work as slaves in the sugar plantations of the Caribbean. And at this time, the vast majority were being sent to Saint-Domingue. In fact, an estimated 800,000 slaves inhabited Saint-Domingue by the late 1780s, ruled over by a European population of just 32,000. This would have ramifications for the colony later on. The French treated their slaves with particular violence and malice, killing, raping and torturing those that were defiant or deemed to be slacking off. Henry Christophe, who lived as a slave on Saint-Domingue for half of his life before becoming a freed person of colour, describes some of the methods of punishment used by the French colonists. They included crucifixion on wooden planks, waterboarding, lashing slaves' backs and leaving them on anthills, being burnt alive in boiling cane syrup, and leaving slaves at the mercy of hunting hounds, to name just a few examples. These cruelties were given legality by a 1685 decree from King Louis. Such horrific atrocities led to countless slaves fleeing from the plantations and establishing communities deep in the Haitian interior. Known as Maroons, these people did their best to remain hidden from the French colonial militias. One such Maroon, Macandal, gathered quite a large following and led numerous raids against French settler towns. Eventually, in 1758, he was captured and burnt alive publicly in Cap Francais. Interestingly, Saint-Domingue had the largest number of free coloured people in the Caribbean. They largely came about as the offspring of a French slave owner and his African concubine, and were afforded a certain degree of rights compared with full-blooded slaves. Nonetheless, by the 1780s, the French regime had implemented discriminatory policy against them as well, targeting the growing number of these free people who owned coffee farms and plantations. They had even made significant inroads into the slavery business as well. It must be noted that this group of generally wealthier, educated coloured people comprised a significant portion of the revolutionary leadership that would challenge French colonial rule later in the century. By the late 1780s, internal contradictions in the French colony were reaching their zenith. Conditions had rapidly deteriorated for the black slave population, which paradoxically vastly outnumbered the white colonists and yet were being subjugated and exploited by them. The inequalities between these two groups were now glaringly obvious, and the free people of colour were very quickly growing disillusioned and angered by the brutality and discriminatory policy of the French elite. Then in 1789, events in Europe proved to alter Saint-Domingue's, soon to be Haiti's, history irrevocably. In particular, the French Revolution had begun, with the National Assembly in Paris putting into effect the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, granting at least nominally human rights and universal suffrage to French men. There was, however, much confusion amongst the mulatto class in Haiti about this decree, as it did not apply to them nor the slaves, despite the fact that they too belonged to France. 
The diffusion of French revolutionary ideals throughout the colony, coupled with a noticeable economic downturn given the turmoil in France itself, led to increasing calls for the fundamental rights of African Haitians to be respected. Vincent Auger was one such mulatto calling for change. He petitioned lawmakers in Paris to apply the same rights to French colonial subjects. This plea fell on deaf ears and in 1790 Auger led an uprising on the island. It was suppressed and he and his supporters fled to the Spanish-controlled West, where, betrayed by the Spaniards, they were captured and returned to the French colonial regime. Vincent Auger was subsequently tortured and executed. By 1791, the French government had agreed to grant citizenship rights to the wealthier people of colour in Haiti, yet the slave owners on the island continued to treat them as second-class citizens, ignoring Paris. This sparked isolated incidents of fighting across the territory, which eventually grew into full-scale bloodshed as the French found themselves faced with an increasingly powerful and well-coordinated resistance movement. Foreign powers also had a part to play in this conflict, but we will save the Haitian Revolution itself the next time. And next time will be in three weeks' time. That was Sasha Gillies-Lakakis, and that was an excerpt from the Latin American Update Program on 3CR every Sunday morning at 10.30. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. And now the monthly talk by author Joan Coxedge. Once upon a time I felt reasonably comfortable in saying I was an Australian, but that was back in the days when we led the world in winning a 35-hour week, votes for women, had decent wages and conditions and adequate welfare benefits, when we debated important issues, had a far more diverse and freer press, and when our basic commodities were in public hands and jobs gave security and, if you were lucky, even some satisfaction. What a different story today as we continue to slide backwards after being sold out by a succession of reactionary, deceitful governments, the current one being amongst the worst. If you have a job at all, and we all know the official employment figures are clearly fraudulent, you're counted as working when you might only be working for a few hours a week with no sick leave, holiday pay, overtime, job security, or the other basics unions fought so hard for, and then bang, you're sacked on the scrap heap and have to fight like buggery to get a miserable payout leaving you to subsist below the poverty line with no hope of redress and treated like a pariah especially if you're over the age of 50. Public apathy has extended to an acceptance of our cringing relationship with the US of A whose leadership makes the Tiller the Hun look like a moderate. But we still continue to join in their barbarism and their wars without a second thought, like we did in Iraq, an unmitigated disaster. The US invaded it, occupied it, destroyed it, and left behind the detritus of war, the tanks, the trucks, the bombers, the armoured vehicles, infantry weapons, artillery and mortars, some of them coated with depleted uranium, leaving toxic residues in the air, in the water, 
and in the soil that will stay toxic for millennia. Just like they did in Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia, each time the Americans simply walked away and then wonder why so many hate their guts. Corporates make a heap of money out of war. Money and the bottom line are all they care about. And naturally they love our laissez-faire capitalist system because they can get away with screwing workers into the ground, especially with unions on the ropes, with no right to strike and no Bill of Rights. The crooks and rorters love it because no one stops their rorting. Capitalism's terrific if you're rich and rotten and stupid, but it needs growth, and growth is killing our world and killing our animals and birds and trees and flowers that make it so special. We should all be shouting from the rooftops like 16-year-old Greta Thunberg, who told the UN with passion and integrity, people are suffering, people are dying, entire ecosystems are collapsing, and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. I want you to act as if our house is on fire. And she's right. Our house is on fire. But miserable sods like our Pentecostal Prime Minister didn't speak at the last month's UN forum because he had nothing to say, preferring to hobnob with seriously mad as a meat axe Trump, a warmongering dud on the cusp of impeachment. In Hong Kong, the protests are getting more violent and vicious. Two so-called democracy fighters I mentioned the last time I spoke on this program were Hong Kong politician and barrister Martin Lee and Joshua Wong. Both of them received significant training and funding from the National Endowment for Democracy. Martin Lee even received a Democracy Award from NED. Extraordinary! considering that Ned specialises in destroying democratically elected governments that show a smidgen of independence and equality. Ned was set up in the early 1980s under President Reagan and Henry Kissinger at a time when, post-Watergate, the CIA was getting rotten publicity for its criminal activities, and the powers that be felt that something had to be done. And so they shifted the CIA's most evil ways to a brand new outfit with a nice-sounding name, the National Endowment for Democracy, so that it could continue to do overtly what the CIA had been doing covertly and eliminate the stigma associated with the CIA. Thus, an insidious Trojan horse was born. Over the decades, NED has caused instability and mayhem everywhere it operates by supporting right-wing outfits and institutions against elected governments by way of private, quote, non-government efforts, end of quote, another myth where every cent of its funding comes from Washington. The CIA has used NED to launder money via its four main right-wing funding bodies, the International Republican Institute, the National Democratic Institute for International Affairs, the American Center for International Labor Solidarity, which is an affiliate of the anti-union AFL-CIO, and lastly an affiliate of the Chamber of Commerce, the Center for International Private Enterprise. This gang of four sends funds to other institutions throughout the world, which then sends funds to yet more organisations, including the democracy movement in Hong Kong, with Ned pulling the levers in a spiderweb of corruption and criminality. 
Ned meddles in the internal affairs of God knows how many foreign countries by supplying funds, technical know-how, training, educational materials, computers, iPhones, photocopiers and transport and so on to selected groups, civic organisations, unions, dissident movements, students, book publishers, newspapers and other media. And these groups have one thing in common – pushing the view that people are best served under a system of free enterprise, of class cooperation, meaning collaboration, collective bargaining, remember the accord, anyone? With minimal government intervention in everything, and promoting the lie that a vicious free market economy is a genuine democracy when it isn't. And if you look to our media to counter this nonsense, you're dreaming. It's one of the most narrowly based in the world, coming in above 42 on the index of world press freedom, where a couple of rich, unprincipled moguls control the bulk of what we see and what we hear, and where you have to hunt for news in what passes for it, sandwiched between the ads. And no joy from our corporatised universities, where once fearless vice-chancellors have become timid CEOs running Mickey Mouse courses to rake in the dollars, transforming these once great institutions into mediocre de degree factories. Is it any wonder that Australia has been described as a one-legged democracy, where reformists get an even shorter ride than anywhere else, and things are getting steadily worse? And this is basically a rich country. It's therefore unforgivable that today 3 million Australians are living in poverty, 40% of whom have a disability, 31% are Indigenous, with 1 in 5 Australians going hungry in the past 12 months, and 1 in 6 being children. Imagine the stress and exhaustion in trying to make ends meet, to put food on the table, to stay warm, to stay alive when you simply don't have enough money. Compare those figures with the obscene amount CEOs get, along with all the perks that go along with their wage largesse. And in this increasingly conservative political nightmare with so few outlets, it's almost too impossible to hear a genuine voice, particularly if it has a left-wing accent. More than ever, it's a case of tell the truth if you dare, like Australian citizen Julian Assange, who was Edward Snowden, exiled in Russia, and Chelsea Manning, detained indefinitely, exposed massive crimes and corruption by the US government and, and its allies, and remains locked up in Belmarsh High Security Prison in appalling conditions, abandoned by our government and by our media, which are running scared in case they end up like him. And there is clear evidence already of self-censorship operating throughout our media, and now it's been revealed that the Ecuadorian embassy security firm was spying on Julian while he was holed up in London and is said to have delivered the audio and video surveillance to the CIA. The firm also put surveillance systems in the embassy's female toilet, a place where Assange's lawyers used to meet with him believing it was safe. And so there is a certain irony that this week large sections of our media have come out swinging against Canberra's latest attempts to muzzle the press, citing police raids on journalists, unlawful accessing of metadata to identify a journalist source, and a spree of new national security legislation to criminalise journalistic activity. And what happens here can affect journalists everywhere. 
Some of us have continued to raise free speech concerns about the US indictment of Julian Assange. Because for the first time in US history, the Espionage Act is being used against a journalist and publisher. And as the New York Times and Washington Post have made clear, Julian's indictment criminalises journalistic practices anywhere it is used to report in the public interest. And there is no denying the parallels with the Australian Federal Police raids on Australian journalists with the Assange indictment. Both involve receipt and publication of classified information about Afghanistan, including evidence of war crimes. 9-11 has been a bonanza for this security establishment. In the first parcel of post-9-11 laws, when the federal government asked for public submissions, despite a shameful media response, virtually none, and a lack of time, the two parliamentary committees received between 200 and 300 submissions from around Australia and yet they only allocated a couple of days for a select few to appear at the public hearings for some perfunctory questioning about legislation that was altering some of the most basic tenets of our criminal justice system by removing the right to silence and presumption of innocence. The new special offence of terrorism created back then is a lethal catch-all act which includes violent attacks or threats of violent attacks quote, intended to advance a political, religious or ideological cause which is directed against or endangers Commonwealth interests, end of quote, with a maximum penalty of life imprisonment. It could be used to net in anyone protesting about almost anything and gives the government the power to seize and freeze your assets. The Defence Act creates offences for unlawfully giving or obtaining naval, military or air force information and a person faces up to 25 years jail if they deal with information that concerns Australia's national security and are reckless as to whether it will prejudice national security. Checks and balances? You've got to be joking. However, since the destruction of New York's Twin Towers, Australia has enacted... 82 anti-terrorism laws and now has the most comprehensive range of such laws of any comparable Western nation, with a new anti-terror law being enacted every six to seven weeks. And while I speak, there are another six bills in the pipeline, and these are fascist laws to criminalise dissent and give this government and any future one the freedom to do what it likes against whomever it likes, no matter how tenuous the charge and how they will be used depends entirely on the political climate of the day. And today in a new law, the mere act of travelling to certain areas such as Mosul in Iraq has been criminalised, because if you do, according to the government, you would be automatically advocating terrorism. And in addition to taking away Australian citizenship from dual nationals, the government would also be able to prevent anyone from returning home under a temporary exclusion order, even Australians who only have an Australian passport. So take great care where you go on your next overseas trip. And don't hang around Pine Gap in our own neck of the woods if you decide to pay Alice Springs a visit. Laughingly called the Joint Defence Facility when it was never joint, never about defence and never just a facility. Australians were just the chief cooks and bottle washers and as a special treat were allowed to drive around the Yankee invaders in their flash left-hand drives. 
Established in 1966 at the height of the Cold War as a space research centre, when from day one it was a CIA operation with some input from America's infinitely bigger, extremely secret and highly sophisticated national security agency, its global electronic spying mob. Highlighting its importance to the US war machine, Pine Gap's radomes have expanded from two when it started to 38 today, with staff increasing from 400 to 800, making us a prime nuclear target. I've recently finished rereading Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, which first came out in 1985, a story set in a totalitarian theocracy called Gilead, where patriarchy is in complete control and where intimidation, violence and murder are used to suppress the people and where women are relegated to performing a few primary functions, some becoming handmaids forced to act as breeding machines for powerful men and their wives. Atwood has stressed that everything she has written was based on fact, that the control of women has been a feature of every repressive regime on the planet. What is so noticeable and worrying today is that right-wing onslaughts and attacks on women's rights are happening in so many different countries at the same time. Her book is therefore a timely reminder that things should never be allowed to get to such an extreme situation in the first place. With fundamentalists of every persuasion taking root in almost no debate on vital issues, I feel deeply concerned for the future. Unless there are some basic changes in the opposite direction, if we're not careful, we'll land back in the dark ages and find ourselves face-to-face with an updated version of the Inquisition for even minor insubordinations. We're getting there. Challenge popular beliefs and you're likely to be labelled un-Australian, whatever the devil that means. Unfortunately, far too many people refuse to believe that the sky is falling in until a large chunk of it falls on their heads, and by then it's usually too late. So shout from the rooftops as loud as you can and fight back as hard as you can, and whatever you do, refuse to be silenced. Good afternoon and all the best of luck. So we need plenty of that, Joan. That's Joan Coxidge, writer and author. It's coming up to five minutes past five. Dr. Salma Abu-Sita is a renowned Palestinian researcher, a civil engineer who has spent 40 years digging for any detail of information about or related to Palestine before and after al-Nakba when over 800,000 Palestinians were largely driven from their homes and villages. Not only that, but by his groundbreaking project Mapping Historic Palestine, the Comprehensive Atlas of Palestine, and developing a practical plan for implementing the right of return of Palestinian refugees. Dr Abu Sitta was in Melbourne last week to present a lecture titled Palestine Right of Return, An Empty Promise or Real Possibility? Thank you all for being here. I know you are here for a cause. You believe in the principles of justice. That's a noble cause which makes people leave their homes and come to attend a lecture by someone who comes from far away, thousands of kilometers away. This is a noble feeling that you care about other people who suffered injustice. 
Let me tell you in the most clearest terms, the Palestinian Nakba is unsurpassed in history. I say that decidedly and with determination. Ponder these expressions, I'm going to say. The Palestinian Nakba is unsurpassed in history. Why? A country like Palestine is invaded and occupied, emptied of its people, driven into refugee camps, its physical and cultural landmarks systematically obliterated, its geography taken over and renamed, its history erased from all records, its heritage expropriated as the invaders own, its destruction hailed as a miraculous act of God and as a victory of the few writers over the savage many, all done according to a premeditated plan hatched outside the country, meticulously executed, supported by colonial powers in every field, and its refutation by the rule of law or the word of truth and the cries of victims for justice are forbidden, forbidden as the eternal sin of anti-Semitism. All this is maintained not for a period of war, but for seven decades and still counting. And I maintain that this is indeed unsurpassed in history. It really boggles the mind. Why is justice so elusive so far? International law and myriad of UN resolutions has been calling for justice for Palestinians. The right of return, for example, resolution number 194, has been affirmed more than 130 times. It's the longest standing resolution in UN history since it was established in 1945. Why is this tragedy still claiming victims today? Why is a Nakba still going on after 70 years? Well, as you know, the beginning was 100 years ago on the day the treacherous Balfour Declaration was made. That was a false promissory note. He has no right to give away something he does not own to others who have no title in the absence without the knowledge even of the rightful owners of the country. But in spite of British collusion during 30 years of the mandate, as you know, the mandate uh, entrusted Britain to bring Palestine to freedom and independence. Instead, it made Palestinians refugees. And under strong pressure, the UN passed a resolution at the end of the mandate to partition Palestine, 55% to the new European Jewish colonists, and 45, less than half, to the majority of the Palestinian population. The total of the Jewish-owned land under the British mandate in 1948, 6% of Palestine. When the partition plan was proposed, it gave away, or suggested actually, 55% the blue area of Palestine for the new Jewish-European colonists, Many of them don't even have Palestinian nationality. Many of them actually came to our shores in the middle of the night in a smuggler ship. 
and the population of the country was left with less than half. But the uh, Zionists, then were not called Israelis, obtained or by conquered more than that. So they finally got 78% of Palestine. And the only 20% remaining, which is now the West Bank and Gaza, for the majority of uh, the population country. And now, actually, I would like to tell you something which you have very rarely been told about. This partition plan is not a law. It was only a recommendation. And such a recommendation was given to other countries in many parts of the world, and it has never had any legal authority. United Nations itself said we have no authority to divide countries and give away part of this to this and that. We have no authority. We're only suggesting. But, of course, Palestinians would not part away with half of uh, their country, more than half, with the other half taken away from them. The population there is still Palestinian. So the United Nations dropped the plan, partition plan. You do not hear that. In fact, the United States itself dropped the plan. Only four months after it was passed in November 1947, in March 1948, it was dropped. Ben-Gurion got mad. He was hoping that this partition plan is the legal thread by which he can claim a state of Israel on the land of Palestine. So he ordered the invasion of Palestine. The Zionist invasion of Palestine started and it, under the name of Plan Dalet. This picture is for the central part of Palestine. You can see easily the red areas are Palestinian land occupied by the Haganah and the blue dots are villages which have been depopulated at that time. A total of 220 Palestinian villages have been depopulated and its population are today half all the refugees of Palestine. They have been depopulated while the British were there supposedly to protect the Palestinians from any aggression. And that is before Israel was formally declared. That was the Zionist invasion. This one shows the same in the upper part of Palestine, Galilee. All the red areas have been occupied by force by the Zionist militia while the British were watching, supposedly protecting Palestinians. And that is before any Arab soldier came to protect Palestinians after massacres like Deir Yassin. There were in this period 25 massacres out of a total of 50 committed. All the black circles you can see showing the villages depopulated in that time due to the influence of one or two villages within the black circle. So half the population of refugees who are expelled today have been expelled by, there was no Israel at the time, by the Zionist Haganah before Israel was established and before the British have left. That is what is called Zionist invasion of Palestine. It is not what they tell you, the Arab invasion of Palestine, which came six weeks later to try to rescue the, what's left of Palestinians. Unfortunately, they failed to do so. This is the fact which must be kept in, in mind. Was Israel, as it says, in a state of self-defense? It started the Zionist invasion of Palestine 
before it was established, while the British were there, and here's the proof. They also never tell you that the partition plan was dropped by the United Nations. So this is a violation of international law against the UN resolutions. In 14th of May, at the end of this period, Israel was declared. And then the Arabs came from neighboring countries to try to rescue Palestinians. They couldn't. So we have now what's called a Nakba. A Nakba, very simply, all the red dots are Palestinian villages which have been depopulated, uh, have been living in Palestine at the time, then came Nakban. And all these villages have been depopulated, kicked out, with 50 massacres taking place in 31 military operations by a Zionist army of 120,000 soldiers in nine brigades covering all of Palestine from north to south. And an army came, most of the officers are officers of the Second World War in the Red Army in Russia, in the Europe Army, in the American Army. They came and actually carried out the invasion of Palestine, making it empty of its population. When they tell you the myth that Palestine is a land without people, what they meant was, we will make it so. We'll make Palestine as a land without people. And there it is, empty. And that was the time for Ben-Gurion to say to Jews around the world, come in, come in, this is an empty land, come and take their houses, take their lands, and come in and become citizens. And they started to come after the Nakba had taken place. If the ethnic cleansing of Palestine did not take place, there will be no Israel today. So ethnic cleansing of Palestinians is a prerequisite, is a fundamental basic principle why Israel was established. Without ethnic cleansing of Palestinians, where there will be no Israel today, there will be probably people who are living there as ordinary citizens, but it will not be occupied as such. Then what happened to the Palestinians? They became refugees. Where did they become refugees? In 600 places in what's left of Palestine, which is now called West Bank and Gaza, and around it. But they're still around it. 88% of Palestinians are still either in Palestine itself or a narrow, narrow band around, around Palestine. So here is the cause of the 70 years conflict of war and strife and suffering and death and wars and raids by air, by sea, by land. This is the cause of it. It will continue so long as this is continuous. And this massive displacement is also very well known is one major crime. But there is another one. To prevent those people to return home is also a major war crime. So if one major crime has taken place in 1948, and of course it's continued since then, but denial of the right of return all these years is also a major war crime. According to the Statute of Rome of 1998, which is the basis of the International Criminal Court in Lahai, says so in Article 6 and Article 5. So not only we have a historical crime which taken place long time ago, but it's ongoing crime, and it is complicated by another crime over it, preventing the right of return to the Palestinians. What we can say, of course, uh, is that apart from the conscience of good people, 
who have, unfortunately, no planes and no F-16s and no tanks and so on. But apart from that, the international law solidly stands behind Palestinian right of return. In every article of international law, whether a treaty, whether it is uh, resolutions, whether it is uh, conventions, the right of displaced people to return home is sacrosanct. There is no question about that. Now, I try to tell you in this short talk, and I maintain there is no demographic reason, there is no geographical reason, there is no legal reason, definitely, there is no logistic reason, there is no economic reason to justify the denial of the right of return of refugees to return home. There is none of that. There is only one obstacle, the racist policies and the apartheid policies of Israel and colonialism. There is no other reason whatsoever, as I'm going to say. So, if we want peace, we have to allow the refugees to return and to abolish all policies of colonialism and, and apartheid. If we now take the positive point, I explain to you what the crime has been against the Palestinians. Let us propose a solution. The solution, of course, simply is to return home. My European friends, when I tell them that, they tell me, yes, we agree, it's grave injustice. All the laws are against it. And we see this every day. We don't have to be 70 years old to know that. We see it all the time in the news, demolished homes, snipers killing protesters and children and so on. You know this. But are you going to create a Jewish Nakba for the Jews who are there? I'm surprised at this question, because it's not a moral question, and also it's not a legal question. It's not also a logical question. If a burglar comes to your house with a machine gun, kills half of your people, and the survivor, he puts them in the kitchen, lock them up, and they are screaming, knock on the door, want to get out, what do you say? You say, keep them locked up, keep them up in the street, in refugee camps, and then the burglar stay in your home because he brought his friends there? Is that justice? Who would accept that? Any of you would accept that? I don't think anybody would accept that. But I propose that this question is a moot question, is not a necessary question. Let me explain to you who the population of Palestine, Israel, are today. Who are they? Where do they live? Can we let the refugees back? I try to answer this question. I just told you that there has been a lot of massacres, 50 massacres. This is one of them, Tantura. Tantura is a small fishing village in the Mediterranean. Um, the Haganah came there, attacked the village and killed 220 people by dragging them into trenches, shot them in the trenches and let them die there. The remainders of the village were taken to concentration camps and into forced labor camps. The Israelis have created five concentration camps and forced labor camps in Palestine, and uh, my research led to another 17. They are all listed in the map. How do you know that? We know that first from the Red Cross files in Geneva. They were open to files in 1997. So I went there. I copied 500 documents from the Red Cross visiting these concentration camps. What they did, the Israelis, at the time, when they come to a village, especially in Galilee, they would kill anywhere from 20 to 200 young people, 
and let the women and children go away and they take the men, males, even from the age of 10 to forced labor camps. And they stayed there for probably about two years. And there they, their job was to carry ammunition and to bury the Palestinian dead, to carry the loot from Arab homes, to do all works which are available because the Haganah forces are busy occupying more land. The Red Cross has documented this, and I actually have interviewed survivors of these uh, forced labor camps. This is published in Washington 2014, anyone who would like to follow that. Now, the refugees, for example, um, who lived in refugee camps, were not even safe after becoming refugees. This is Gaza. All the red dots you have just seen now are villages which have been depopulated and pushed into Gaza Strip. Now, the, people, the villages in Gaza Strip today are 247 villages from southern Palestine. In other words, they lived in 50% of Palestine. And now they pushed into Gaza Strip 247 villages depopulated in 1% of Palestine. When people tell you they are crowded, of course they are crowded. You push half of Palestine into 1% of Palestine, of course. Their density of population there is over 7,000 persons per square kilometer in an area which is only 365 kilometers squared. Palestine is 26,000 kilometers. They are pushed there. And who lives in the land on the right side, which is now empty? Kibbutz, settlers. They live at a density of seven persons per square kilometer. In other words, the density of population in Gaza Strip is 1,000 times the density of those who occupied their land. And they tell you why are they crowded. Well, that's the reason. They are, of course, trying to go back home. Their homes are within sight. These are second generation or third generation refugees from Gaza protesting at the barbed wire where they can see their land only one kilometer away. They are not allowed to go there. Look at this, this iconic picture of people over 70 years never gave up any day to go back home. And they can see their home. And what they get, snipers killing them. Thousands of young people are maimed, no knees, no feet, apart from those who are killed. And this happens every Friday. Every Friday those young people say, we want to go back. Our home is there. And what they get? They get bullets from the Israeli army, well-trained snipers. And they tell you, we are well-trained to do that. That is not history. That is newspaper information. You can see it any day. Can we continue to have that? Can we accept the war crime of ethnic cleansing? Anyone of conscience, whatever, wherever he comes from, can you accept this perpetual ethnic cleansing? Even Jerusalem, today people are, their homes are demolished in the West Bank, let alone in Gaza, everywhere. Can you accept that? Anyone in his conscience can accept whatever your background is? I don't think so. And therefore, it's our task to end this tragedy. And it is in our conscience, no matter who you are. It's in our conscience. If you sleep tonight and you know that this crime is going on, you have on your conscience a black dot. And I'm sure you are here because you don't feel 
that uh, this is the right situation. So let us see what we can do. We have to create a Palestine in which people can live freely in their homes. People live freely under democracy. The land of Palestine is very well documented. We have no problem. We know who owns what. We know we have thousands, millions of records about Palestinian ownership of land. And when we talk about the law, we have a myriad of heritage of international law on behalf of Palestine. The Declaration of Human Rights, the International Covenant of, against racism and so on, and all that. We have no problem with that. But we have a problem with population, because population have been moved out of their country, and another kind of population came in their place. So we want to see what we can do that. Here is the population distribution. It's a bit old, 2008, but the, all the conclusions I'm going to give you are still valid today. On the left side, the population of uh, Palestine, Israel today. The blue is the Jewish population and the red is Palestinian population. If you look at the extreme left, you see the top trench, 300,000 people. These are foreign migrants, workers coming from Romania and Thailand and so on. So we exclude those. Then the next tranche below is one million Russians. They came from Russia. They are really economic migrants. They came in 1990, and even according to Israel, 40% of them are not recognized by religious law as being Jews. Well, the rest are Ashkenazi Jews from Europe and other places. And the, uh, next to that, the red one, is almost the same number, just slightly less. These are Palestinians on the soil of Palestine today. The red with dots, black dots, are refugees. So all of those people in Palestine today, not all of them are living in their homes. Almost half of them are refugees. The bulk of refugees just outside the border of Palestine on the right-hand side of the scale. So this is the population today. Palestinians are in Palestine, almost half, and on the borders. And the Jews are equivalent to the Palestinians within Palestine today. So let us make an exercise. See... 1,200 towns and villages in Palestine, everyone has a land area. Who lives in that area? We made an extensive study, you can see it if you are so inclined, and we made this study to see who lives on, on each piece of land in, in, in Israel today. Now I'm excluding the West Bank and Gaza. You can see easily that much of this is green. Green means that we found in this area there are no Jews today or very few Jews in the kibbutz. So all these green land, village lands or Palestinian lands are empty, almost empty, excluding the kibbutz of Jews. And this is the bulk of the land from which the refugees have been expelled. Let us go further. Uh, the blue area is the Jewish controlled area of Palestine during the British Mandate. That is when, when they declared Israel, that's the land they controlled with the collusion of the British. That's the extent of the land. On this blue area, they built the whole Israel. So any land taken by Israel outside these blue areas is taken by nothing but military force, by massacres, by guns. There is no legal reason or justification whatsoever of taking any land of Palestine over the blue area except by brute force. 
So Israel is built on land taken over by force. The uh, brown areas are city land. Lands belong to the major 16 cities in, in Palestine. So some of them have mixed population, so they have a different treatment. You see the white areas with black dots here. These are the only areas in which the Israelis took over and lived in Palestinian land, over 30,000 people. You see on the coastline there and up in North Ethiopia, not many areas. These are the only areas in which the majority of population today are Jews taking over a Palestinian land. Then we ask, where is the bulk of the Israeli Jews today? Here they are showing the size of the circle is representative of the number of population. As you can see, they are all com uh, concentrated on Tel Aviv, Jaffa area, and in Jerusalem, on the uh, right side of the picture, and up north in Haifa. These are the largest concentration of Jews in Israel. 87% of Israeli Jews live in this area. The rest is empty. So if the Palestinian refugees return to their same villages, they will only go back to the green areas, in other words, to the land which is empty. On Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR with Jan Bartlett, you're listening to a recording of a lecture by renowned Palestinian researcher Dr Salman Abu Sitta. And the title of his lecture was Palestine's Right of Return, An Empty Promise or a Real Possibility? You see in Galilee there is an area, a green area, which is, which is a little bit empty. Why is it empty? Because the Palestinians are already there. Galilee, half population of Galilee are already Palestinian. So the red dots means their kith and kin, who are refugees, come back to them, to join them. Anyone with any sense of, you know, justice would see, why don't they return? It's very clear. They don't really despair. They displace anyone, provided they are not racist and colonialists, and if they want to live freely, they can live freely. There's no problem. With this study we made is supported by an Israeli study, but you never know about that. This Israeli study is an Israeli plan. It was in 2020. It was created in 1994. It tells you how Israel will look like in 1994 and how they projected it to be 2020. And you can see only 20% is reserved for population, population centers. And the rest, 80% what's it for? It's a military base. It's the largest military base in between Europe and China. So actually Israel is designed to be a military place. You can see all the figures. These are not mine. But I found them after we made our study. How can we actually allow the refugees to go back? You can see the green areas Green circles are villages whose population are expelled into Gaza Strip. So they can go back from Gaza Strip up north to the green areas to their home. They can walk. They can maximum, they can take a bus ride. They don't need airplanes and ships and all that. And here on the east side, these people here uh, in the brown areas, they were pushed back into Jordan and West Bank. So they can walk and get back to their homes. And in Galilee, the situation is even better. You see the pink areas, circles, are Palestinians who are already there, already in Galilee. So if the refugees 
uh, now in Syria and Lebanon go back, they would be welcome. But we have some problems. It's also naive to think there are no problems. So let us examine some of the problems and see how we can solve them. Next one. Here is the largest concentration of Jews, Tel Aviv, Jaffa area. We can create, like Switzerland, we can create cantons. And these blue areas are cantons which are already in existence. They can be combined together. This is Herzliya and Tel Aviv. All this is in existence today. The uh, uh, red circles are Palestinian villages who have been expelled. So probably they can return. There is no conflict here. And uh, the, the same code, color code, is the one I showed you before. So here is canton number one, Tel Aviv, which combines almost three-quarters of Jews in Israel today. To show you that this is true, uh, I have added one more layer on this. Since 1948, 70 years ago, Israel is built and expanded over the areas, especially in this area, this most crowded area, absolutely most crowded. So I decided to see where did they build the urban areas? Have they over, uh, built over this or what? This area, shaded area, is the extent of urban expansion today by Israel after 70 years. It's not very different from the original plan. It's almost the same plan. So the expansion into um, our Palestinian areas is minimal. It can be manageable, probably less than how Melbourne expanded in the last 50 years. So it's not a big deal. Now, therefore, I don't see any logical, geographic, geographical, legal, or any other reason why the Palestinian refugees should not return home. We cannot really continue in Akba for more than 70 years. This here is a scene from what they call Israeli countryside. Nice, green, lovely. But this picture you look at really contains a war crime. If you look carefully, you'll see a war crime. Here is a grave of a killed person or persons. This was the place where a village was called Berjirja. It was destroyed. But nature wanted to tell you a story. So you can see the texture of the landscape here with the black dots tells you there was a village here and its people are refugees only 10, 20 kilometers away in a refugee camp in Gaza and they yearn to go back to their home. This is the grave of the village and they thought when they destroyed it that we'll forget it. We have not forgotten it. We documented everything about Palestine. Next slide. This is the village which was killed by Israelis in 1948. It's called Bidjirja. We have aerial photographs, aerial survey done 1945. We digitized that and we identified every house. Who is the owner of this house? Where does he live today? Is he a refugee in which camp? His family, his names and so on. We know everything about Bidjirja. We know everything about 500 depopulated villages in Palestine. This record is available. We have passed the age of forgetting. We are in the age of IT. And this record will never be forgotten, ever. And every Palestinian child, including my daughter who was born, first generation to be born outside Palestine, will never forget their home. So what shall we do with that? It's now destroyed. Shall we accept that fate? No. The young will never forget. So 
what we did was to try to see how we can arrange the return of refugees. We take one village called Kula. We have massive data about villages and so on. So we want to identify Kula. Here are all the maps we have about Kula village, scale 250,000, another scale of 100,000, closer, closer scale, and then here it is, the village. Now, 1955, Nakba. What happened to that village? We want to know what happened to it. They installed kibbutz. You see the purple circles? And this is the location of the village. Here it is. They destroyed it. And they thought, if you destroy the building blocks, there will be no people to claim right to return. They thought our heritage is bonded by a piece of stone. No. It's bonded by our heritage, long heritage, by history, by geography, by proximity, by law. So it's destroyed. What shall we do? We have to rebuild it. Who will rebuild it? Who will rebuild these villages? The inheritors of this village, the first and second generation of refugees, they want to build their own homes. They are educated. So we arrange an international competition among Palestinian young architects. We gave them a list of 500 villages. Pick your own village. Make your graduation project in your university how to rebuild your own village. And we hold this competition once a year in London. You are welcome to attend in September, first week of September every year. We announce publicly the winners of the designs. And the judges are respectable international architects. Who are they? The past president of Royal Institute of British Architects, and one from Germany, one from Holland, one from Ireland, and one from Palestine. They meet once a year, and they see the submissions given by, we have this year, ten universities participating. Next year we'll have more, and we see what's the best design by the grandson or daughter of the refugee whose village is destroyed. First, we arrange how they return. Now they are refugee camps. Here is Kula. The black spots are the camps where the refugee population are located. This is the way. We even count how many kilometers they have to drive. 35 kilometers, 40 kilometers, something. This is how they go to Kula. The road is open if the Israelis are not there. So we take one case. Um, a family who lived in Muzdar camp in Jordan. We, we, why we chose that? Because we happen to have a young woman who is graduating this year. She comes from Muzdar College, and her family comes from Kula. We told her, go on, go on, design your village. That's your job. So they found the aerial photo of the village to be like that from the British Aerial Survey. So what shall we do? We digitize it. We identify the names. This is the, her family house. She found her family house. And she wanted to build the village. Then, this is destroyed now. And what is it today? This is it. It's still empty. And then, this is the young woman who comes from Kula. And she designed her village. That's her design. She got a prize for it. She's one of the winners of the rest. And that is the new Kula, rebuilt by the people of Kula, over the they are refugees. Qastal is a village west of Jerusalem. We identify the village. 
from our database. Then, then we have all the data we have by the village, 250,000 scale before 1948. Then we have another scale, 100,000, bigger scale, closer scale, Al-Qastal. And then this is the latest one before it was destroyed. So what did the Israelis do? 55, they started building. You see the road changes up there. Then they created the kibbutz around it. And this is Qassal, surrounded by kibbutz. And then they destroyed it to them, destroyed. But not to the people of Qassal. We then decided, how can people of Qassal return? Here are the people of Qassal in these camps. We identify them. Uh, those are in Jordan, of course, because they are closer to Jerusalem. And then they have the roads, how they can go from their camps right to Qastal village, and they arrive there. And we identify one in Suwailah camp, the village, uh, the family called Nasrallah. They lived in Suwailah. We told the young man, there you are a graduate student. Come on, design your village. Here is the village before it was destroyed. We digitized again, identified the houses, and the owner of the houses, he knew where his family house was. There it is. That's his father, grandfather told him. Then, the present situation, go ahead, design the new village with a new population. We are ten times more than 1948. Here is his, his name is Yazan got a prize, and here he designed his village. This is his construction plan. There is a will, there is a way, and we don't give up. We have no quality in our DNA to say we give up. We don't have that. It's missing. Giving up is missing from our DNA. The problem of building the destroyed villages is nothing for us. We have 100,000 engineers. They built the Gulf, they built many places, they built Beirut, they built Amman. They can easily build that. We need only one and a half maybe two million housing units. We have the engineers, we have worked, I am one of them. We built many places in the Middle East. We have no problem with that. And even we know we can classify how many, how many stages we have to do, how many villages each stage, how much labor we have. We even count how many sacks of cement we need. So we have no problem with that. If we are allowed to get rid of apartheid and racism, then the world will be freer. More than that, the cost of this construction is less than the amount of aid given by the United States to Israel in one year. We save the American taxpayer to pay more money. Only one year, and then you don't have to pay for 70 years. Only one year. Besides, of course, the reparations we are entitled to. But the construction of that is, again, not a problem. So, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to tell you there is no logical reason whatsoever, no legal reason, no demographic reason, no economic reason that the refugees, uh, Palestinians, return to their home. The only reason, of course, is, you know, apartheid and racism, which are condemned by the world. If it's tolerated by big powers for now for their own reasons, I have no doubt that it's short-lived and will never last. Let me conclude by a little story about Australia and Palestine. And it is a personal story. Here is the third battle of Gaza, they call it. And because uh, in 1917, 
when the British army with Anzac uh, troops among them tried to take over Gaza, they failed twice to take Gaza. And they decided to have uh, a new line of attack. Though They decided to take a new route from that location east to surprise Beersheba town from the east. And they did. They actually started from my place. It's called here Abu Sita. It's in the map, not my doing. And they went and they took Beersheba. They took Beersheba uh, at 6 p.m. and Zak, and Zak forces, the Australian Light Horsemen, 4th uh, Regiment, took it at 6 p.m. It's a slight technical problem there. I'll be back in a moment. VCR are selling kefir, Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Unfortunately, I've lost the line there for the lecture by Dr. Thalman Abbasiti, but um, the program was nearly finished anyway, so we'll just have a few more community announcements and then it'll be time for Done by Law. We know you love our 3CR Radical Radio t-shirts and so do we They're 100% cotton and Australian made and you can get one for just $30 They come in black, dark grey and a cool light grey To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street or order by phoning 9419-8377 or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one. CR are selling kefir, Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. For 45 years, Friends of the Earth has been mobilising communities to resist the destructive industries like coal, gas, nuclear, and to transform our world into somewhere better. Come celebrate with us as we celebrate 45 years of creative resistance. 25th of October at the Gasometer, doors open at 8pm with a welcome to country at 9pm. The lineup includes Alicia Joy, Hello Tut Tut, Mortisville, Claddy, and more. You know it'll be fun because it's Friends of the Earth. See you there. You can get tickets online or at our famous food co-op at 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. 
Friends of the Earth are a proud supporter of 3CR. From October the 28th to the 31st, some of the worst climate criminals will be gathering for the International Mining Conference, IMARC, at the Melbourne Convention Centre. Blockade IMARC is an activist alliance committed to putting a stop to the mass destruction caused by extractive industries across the globe and the harm they cause to communities and ecosystems. We need your help to be part of this blockade. Find out how at blockadeimark.com or check out our Facebook page, Blockade IMARC. A 3CR supporter. I would just back announce again the person of the lecture which was held at the State Library Theatrette last week. It was Dr. Salman Abisita, a wonderful man, nearly 81 years old, a researcher, an engineer who's been working, he worked for 40 years to research all the, what has happened to the land of Palestine prior to it being taken over by the, the Zionist regime and he has much he's written many many books he's written papers he's a tireless worker he's in Australia talking in most of the capital cities of the world for I think it's Adelaide the Edward Said Memorial Lecture and in Brisbane Sydney and other places if you'd like to find out more about him have a look on on the web if you put in Dr Salman Abu Sitta, that's S-A-L-M-A-N, A-B-U-S-I-T-T-A, and find out more about his work and the, his plan, which would work if they can get rid of the Israeli military as a land that belongs to the Palestinian people and where the refugees could easily be returned to their homeland. That's Dr. Salman Abu Sitta. That's all I have today. But let's go out with Ruby Hunter and her song, Good Jolly Lady. And I'll be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. Bye for now.